Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm talking to the wonderful Poppy Jamie, who is the author of the new book, Happy Not Perfect. And we discuss what it means to be happy, not perfect, We talk about how to become a connoisseur of your feelings. Poppy shares her experience of anxiety and imposter syndrome and also workaholism and burnout. And she shares the things that have helped her. Plus, she also shares one thing that she's struggling with at the moment and how she's overcoming it. Plus, I've made something for you if you are having a bad day today or if you find that a bad day turns into a bad week or a bad month. I want to introduce you to the Positivity Reset Toolkit. Are you somebody that would love to wake up in the morning feeling good about the day ahead, trusting that everything will work out? Would you love to move through your day feeling lighter, as though that heavy weight that has been on your shoulders has been lifted? Would you love to be able to say yes to opportunities that come your way, an invite from a friend or an exciting project at work because you're feeling more optimistic and capable? Or would you love to have your housemate notice a positive change in you and ask you what you're doing that's different? If so, the Positivity Reset Toolkit can help you. It gives you five simple, actionable steps to turn your negative state of mind into a better one. And these strategies can fit easily into your life in as little as 10 minutes. If you're interested, head on over to karma-u.com forward slash positive. That's karma, C-A-L-M-E-R hyphen Y-O-U.com forward slash positive. So let's get into the episode with Poppy Jamie. So welcome, Poppy. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me, Chloe. I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's been basically 14 days straight rain. But aside from the gloomy weather, I'm feeling okay. Good to hear. Good to hear. I've been loving reading your book. It's called Happy Not Perfect. It's very, very funny. It's very, very funny, which I think is important when you're talking about things like anxiety that can seem pretty serious. But yeah, it's very interesting, practical, funny. You've done such a good job with it. Congratulations. Thank you so much for saying that. It really means uh, the world that you read it and enjoyed it. And it's still so early days, like so few people have read it yet. So it's always so interesting to hear kind of what resonated or, you know, I'm so glad you found it funny. I mean, 
I, I got to a point where I, I end up just having to laugh at myself a lot because no matter how hard I try, things just slightly go wrong. So um, I kind of learned early on to be able to laugh at, at moments. Otherwise, you'd just spend, spend my life crying. Yeah, I think we need that that lightness when it comes to these topics. And, you know, if we can take ourselves less seriously, I think reading this book will be able to to see the heavy things like the the beliefs that really hold us back, to see that in a lighter way or to to know that we're not alone, I think is so, so important. But can you start off by sharing a bit about what you do, how you got to to write this book, a bit about your sort of background and how you came to write this this book? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess kind of my interest in mental health started at a really young age, not really knowing it was going to take such a main part in my life. And that's because my mother's a psychotherapist and my father suffered from chronic stress, anxiety for his whole life. So even before kind of culturally, we understood what anxiety was growing up, you know, from the age of kind of eight, nine, 10, he was an entrepreneur. And so it was, you know, one day, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not going to have a, you know, we're not going to be able to survive. And the next day, oh, it's going okay. And and what I guess I realized from those ages is that our emotions are so contagious. You know, as children, we would worry so much because we'd see my dad worry. And we are quite, I guess, an emotionally open family. I've got two brothers and honestly, we were at dinner on Friday and we all started crying in the middle of this dinner. Like nothing's really changed. But I guess we're so open with our emotions. And my mother was a physiotherapist before she was a psychotherapist. And so she'd always teach us that the body was such a sign and what was being experienced in the mind. And that was because, you know, she would treat someone's back and she would ask the question, oh, when did this, when did your back start hurting? And almost always it would be aligned with an emotional event in someone's life. Oh, actually that, oh, when my divorce started or, oh, when I actually had to move house and I didn't want to, or when I lost my job or just, you know, even like very small things. And so It was a really interesting childhood because I guess we had one parent really struggling and another who was teaching us around like the tools to try to manage your mental health. And and I thought, I I don't think I probably realized the early signs of my mental health deteriorating until my body completely crashed. And so at the age of 18, I went to university and then I started television presenting for lots of different channels like and um, and I, I, I was an entertainment reporter, so I used to do all these interviews. And then I moved to LA and launched a talk show there, which was the first one on Snapchat. So it was the birth of this kind of content on social media. And so we had millions of people watching. And again, we were not culturally in a place where we spoke about how we felt at all. And so I was almost shocked when I started receiving thousands of messages from all these people around the world. Didn't matter gender, age, location. Everybody was saying the same thing, which is, oh my God, I just can't handle life right now. I'm feeling so stressed. I'm really worried about the future. I'm worried about my friends. And I remember reading these messages going, yeah, me too, me too. And also, this was the, I guess these years were the moments where we were fully kind of adopting social media as it was. And none of us had a handbook about, oh gosh, this is what social media might make you feel, or this is how, you know, how you might want to handle it if you're not feeling so good about yourself, like, you know, warning social media can be, you know, quite triggering or anything like that. And, you know, we all kind of 
rushed into these social media platforms. And at the time, I was working myself to the bone. I was a freelance kind of TV presenter, which anyone who's a freelancer, I guess, will understand that like compulsion to always say yes, even though you know you may not have the time or bandwidth. It was just like, yes, 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 because you're so terrified of not being able to like get the next job. So you have that real starvation mentality where if you don't eat now, then you don't know when the next food is going to come. And I had that mentality over every aspect of my life, like from like eating to work to just being the ultimate people pleaser, which turns you into the ultimate like yes person. And you say yes to everyone else but yourself. And my anxiety was skyrocketing. And I just refused to acknowledge it and refused to acknowledge the stress. And everybody could see me like really deteriorating. But it was only until my house like absolutely stopped me. And that was the moment when I was forced to really go, actually, what was it that my mum was trying to tell me? And actually, like, how on earth have I got to this position? And through my own struggles, did I realize that there was just nothing out there for people? And that was when I started to build the Happy Not Perfect app because... I thought, I'm so sick of another person telling me just to meditate. Like, surely there's another solution because I'm really struggling to do anything right now, let alone meditate. Surely there's another way for me to look after my mind. And um, and this, really, that was the beginning of this entire journey for the last what, six, seven years now of looking at way from a perspective. How could I take the 40 years of, you know, the past like in, in positive neuroscience, the 40 years past of research that has found so much evidence for what we can do for our mind and research-backed tools that actually help. And how do we make sure that everybody has access to them, not just those that have the luxury of like getting going to a therapist or have the luxury of going to, you know, learn about them at a, you know, elite university. And that was really my mission, really. How do we democratize this world that I found actually really difficult to tap into. And I was fortunate I had a mother in the field. And really the point of writing this book, I got to this point where I thought, okay, it's now selfish of me. Like, you know, I've been lucky. I've spent seven years researching the mind. How do I communicate this to everybody else? They don't have to spend seven years reading every single textbook out there. But also really for my younger self, like I wish, I guess I had this book when I was little or not even little, just even a few years ago, because, you know, I was so like under the illusion that I had to be perfect to be liked or accepted. And this book is just hopefully an entire story about how perfect really is an illusion. And especially as women, we are very conditioned, I think, to think that we've got to be just perfect. And actually, we don't at all. Yeah, totally, totally. And I can really see how, you know, your own experiences and the fact that you were open about emotions growing up and your mum had that as a career, you know, that's put you in this amazing position to be able to to do this work. What does it mean to you when you when you think about happy not perfect? What does that what does that mean to you? It's funny because when I was really in the middle of like just busyness and just beating myself up if things weren't just the way I thought they should be, aka perfect. I would spend days in like self-flagellation, like, oh, you should have just done better. You're useless. Why, you know, like, why everybody else can do this? Why can't you? Like, horrible, horrible, like tormenting myself. 
when these words came to me, like happy, not perfect, it was a slight moment, I guess, like a breath. Oh God, (laughs) trying to be perfect is really not making me happy. It's actually just making me really insecure. And just in just in constant, as I said, like self-critical mode that ruins your confidence, ruins your self-esteem. And actually happiness, I started to define happiness in a totally different way. It's actually self-acceptance, like embracing the fact that we all make mistakes. It's like forgiveness and it's, it's a gentleness and happiness before to me had been this like really, it's always been like living life in Barry's boot camp, you know, just like forcing you to go harder and harder and harder, push yourself harder. And it was just making me sick. So happy, not perfect is self-acceptance and also inner trust that, you know, you're going to be okay. You don't need to push yourself to 180 degrees. Um, that doesn't even make sense, but do you know what I mean? 180% to, uh, to feel okay. Mm, I love that. Love that description. Yeah. It's, so interesting, isn't it? How we, we have this idea that we can somehow be perfect. Or, you know, one thing I've noticed in myself is like thinking that I need to be the best at something. Like, do I need to be the best in the world at this? Is that the sort of pressure that I'm putting on myself? That's massive. And you're so right. Being sort of taking that pressure off ourselves and, and learning to accept ourselves and trust ourselves. I love that is, is actually what's going to make us happy because the pursuit of, of perfection just stresses you out. It doesn't actually lead to, lead to happiness. And as you just said, you know, we, we we all have this illusion where we have to be the best. And I was talking about this with a friend and I also like explored this in the book a lot. But where did that even come from? And I do think it comes from this like scarce mentality and we feel like there's not enough around and there's, you know, there's not enough room at the top or there's, or if we're not the best, then then we're going to be irrelevant and we're going to lose our jobs and we kind of then spiral into kind of the worst case scenario. And I think you know, when we look at every human being, like we all have the same needs. We want to be loved, accepted and enough. And I think that those needs often give this illusion that we're not going to be enough and not going to be accepted and we're not going to be safe unless we are inverted commas the best and unless we're perfect because there's this illusion that the world can't, won't tolerate any mistake. And I think it comes from such a primal, it comes from such primal fears, but I think that's, like I guess my da- my one of my daily rituals, I guess, is to really try to release that scarce mentality. I'm like, there's so much room at the top. There's so much room for everybody to be, you know, living a great life and doing what they want to do. And if somebody likes one person, they also like another. And I think we like often, you know, I, I when growing up, I just was so worried the whole time. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, what you say about it being primal. And when you were talking there, I could really see how that need to be good or the best or perfect could be really linked to our survival instincts. If it, if we're making it mean that we're not going to have enough resources or we're not going to be accepted by the tribe, you know, you can really see how that can put us in fight or flight and be really linked to our survival instincts. Definitely. So something about knowing that there's enough to go around and you know, someone said to me once, you know, if we focus on being a contributor to the field of, I don't know, for example, in my situation, mental health, not needing to be like the best person talking about it, but being a contributor, then that can take the pressure off rather than thinking we need to be perfect or the best at something. 
something that you mentioned in the book that I loved, you use the word a connoisseur of feelings. A connoisseur of feelings. Can you share what you mean by that? Uh, yes. So it was, it, it's all around how up until very recently, I think we were so terrified of our feelings. You know, I was very conditioned, I think, growing up to be happy, smile on your face, you know, happy-go-lucky, keep going. And if you feel anything, then, you know, just put a smile on your face and keep going. And as a consequence, I, you know, numbed then how I was feeling. So if I was feeling uncomfortable, it was like, no, push it down, push it down, push it back, push it down. Not now, not now. I can't cry now. It's not appropriate. And so as a consequence, we miss out on tapping into all this wisdom that emotions bring us. And, you know, again, like not to be too gentle in this conversation, but as women as well, I think we are taught to be even more terrified of our emotions because, you know, in literature, I think kind of this emotional woman was often called hysteric or, you know, it was actually negatively described as like an emotional woman, as, you know, somebody who wasn't in control. And I think that for me, I suddenly realized our emotions contain so many messages for us of what our intuition really feels. And I do think we are moving into a slightly, I think, worrying culture of like guru culture, where it's like, oh, somebody else knows the answers to my problems. Or, And actually, what our emotions give us is unlimited amounts of wisdom. So when we become like a connoisseur, when we become an expert on our emotions, it means that actually we look to ourselves for the answers rather than always thinking that somebody else knows us better. And so in the book, I part of the, the flexible method is about how do we unlock that wisdom from our emotions? Because sometimes our emotions are deeply uncomfortable and they can feel confusing. And especially if we're in fight and flight, um, that stressed state, we are unable to tap into any sort. We're able, unable to receive any wisdom because the computer side of our brain is totally deactivated. So becoming a connoisseur on feelings, in the book, you'll learn how to, but it's really about when we're feeling something, slowing down to actually tap into that rather than speeding up to numb it. And like ways that I used to numb my emotions were like, working like being addicted to work it's like no no fine I'll just write my more emails today or even you know intensive exercise that was another way I actually numbed my emotions and anything in extremes is I think often us trying to avoid or you know for other people it may be just going on social media or online shopping or you know just binging Netflix for eight hours or you know I think it's just becoming a another part of like becoming a connoisseur of feelings is to actually become aware of what you do when you start feeling those emotions too do you try to jump to another activity to ignore what's going on inside I think that's such an important one I've noticed it myself. I'll reach for my phone if I'm having like an uncomfortable argument with my partner or yeah, in the past watching tons of Netflix. I haven't watched Netflix in a while, but maybe I'm due some Netflix, but <laughs> it's so interesting. I've noticed in myself how automatic that impulse is. It's like, I don't, I wouldn't even think about it. I'll just grab something to eat or pick up my phone and actually being able to slow down, as you say, and, and go through the discomfort of feeling something and sitting with it and exploring it and listening to it. And I love that you linked it to our intuition because so many people that I speak to tell me, 
you know, I've got anxiety and I, I feel like I'm really disconnected from my intuition and I can't differentiate anxiety from intuition or fear from intuition. And actually that could be a key to it, you know, paying attention to our feelings, and our bodies to really tune in to listen to ourselves more. Yes, I love that. Could you share a bit more about your own experience of things like imposter syndrome? So imposter syndrome is one of those things that it seems like when people have it, they think they're the only one that has it. Everyone else has got their stuff together. Everyone else has kind of figured it all out. But it's actually incredibly common. Can you share a bit about your story of kind of how you've experienced that? Yeah, definitely. And also what I link imposter syndrome to in the book is duck syndrome. And I think they're quite similar. And duck syndrome, I think, also, like, I guess, breaks down imposter syndrome. But I find it quite funny, duck syndrome, because to your point, we feel like everybody else has it together but us. And um, duck syndrome describes how, you know, at, like just like a duck, you're trying to, and this is m- me, like to a T for many years of my life, you're trying to glide across the water, you know, looking fine as if you've got everything together. But actually, if you go underneath the water, you're paddling for dear life. And I feel like that paddling for dear life gives you all these thoughts like you're a fraud because, you know, you should just be gliding right now through life. This should be easy. And if it, if you're not gliding, then, oh my God, you're useless kind of thing. And my imposter syndrome, oh my God. and and. And like with everything with, you know, mental health and so much what you discuss in your podcast, Chloe, it's not like it just goes, you know, in one day, you know, this kind of a lifelong negotiation with our mental and life use of tools and repetition to manage our things like imposter syndrome or mental health. It's not like we complete a game and it's done kind of thing. So, you know, even, even now I, you know, very much like employ the tools to make sure that, you know, even if imposter syndrome is there, I'm able to kind of like greet it at the door and be like, okay, I recognize you and let's let's challenge these thoughts. But for me, I think, especially in the TV presenting days, I would just get, if I had to do anything like live television or, you know, if I was doing any talks and I discussed this in the book, I would mid-talk, I would have my ego in a critic voice just chatting at me being like, everybody watching thinks you're so boring or <laughs> like, you don't know what you're talking about. You really, really shouldn't be here. And I, you know, and I even used to have this with like, when I was like a bit younger, like friends' birthday parties, I used to think that they must've got the wrong name. I, I, I thought, oh, they must've meant, met, meant like another poppy. They, it, they clearly made a mistake inviting me to their birthday party. They must've thought it was another poppy and got the email wrong. And like, I mean, what like sad and horrible thoughts that, you know, I would torment myself with. I remember asking someone, were you meant, were you meant to invite me? Like, are you sure you didn't get the wrong poppy? And they were like, no, I wanted to invite you to my birthday. But I think it just demonstrates the, often the low self-esteem that is within an individual. And also it showed me that it didn't matter externally, inverted commas, what I was inverted commas achieving. It To feel good is such an inside job. And the things that have soothed my imposter syndrome is since I started nurturing my inside. And, you know, before I was doing that, I was just trying to nurture my outside. I had these beliefs that, well, if I got there, then I'll be okay. Then I'll feel like, you know, I've done something. Or once I got this, then I'll feel confident. But 
like with all things, if you wait for something external to fix the inside, there will always be more. It's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You get there and then it moves on and then it moves on and then it moves on. So yeah, imposter syndrome has been something that has definitely got very loud. But since all the kind of exploration of mental health, it's it's definitely kind of the volumes decreased. Winset's gone forever, but far more manageable. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because it seems like I know that people like Michelle Obama experience imposter syndrome and you know, everyone can can look at her and say she's amazing and she knows what she's doing and yet she still has those doubts. And so I think perhaps it is something that may always be with us, but we can stop it from being so loud and stop it from holding us back from from doing the things that we want to do. But yeah, and I guess it's so linked, isn't it, to perfectionism or needing to be the best. I know myself, even now there's something within me that's like, if I can't, if I can't figure out how to use the printer right away, there's like something in me that's like, I should be able to do this. I should like know how to use this instinctively somehow. And maybe in terms of imposter syndrome, we're telling ourselves, even if we're a beginner at something, that we should be like expert at something or we should know exactly how to do it when actually, you know, it's almost as though we don't allow ourselves to be a beginner at things. Or we don't allow ourselves to make mistakes. I think, yeah, that's what I've noticed anyway in myself. What are the sorts of things that have helped you then? Can you give some sort of examples of like, did you have therapy? Did you, I know you spoke about breath work, which I'm a big fan of breath work as well. I don't know if you could share a bit about the things that you personally did that helped you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's been a long journey of outside help and inside help. And therapy is absolutely incredible, I think, to draw your awareness to the blind spots and draw your awareness to critical thinking patterns that often you can't even recognize within yourself because you're actually able to verbalize those thoughts, verbalize the thoughts that you would never dream of sharing with someone. And then actually you can kind of, and people can do that just by journaling because I am also very aware that often we say that therapy is the answer to everything and also like therapy can be expensive and also they're not all therapists are great therapists like we have to be kind of shrewd and make sure that we are always asking ourselves well well, that was that person helpful well maybe I'll go to another person or maybe I'll try a different route to you know managing my mind so I definitely think it's an inside and outside job because even between therapy appointments I realized that it's like I needed to do my own homework because if you're, you know, I got into a habit at one point of like almost just using my therapy appointment to dump and then I would go back to my old habits and then I would just kind of like use the next week to be like, blah, and then I wouldn't change. And so actually the thing that really worked for me was like deliberately, consciously thinking about how my mind was operating like day in, day out and challenging my thoughts when they were coming up. And so in the book, I write about the flex method and that really was, I would say it combines all the tools that have, that become a daily practice to me that I can use preventatively and reactively when I'm in those moments of, you know, my inner critic about to literally start emceeing, I can start kind of like my flex method. And um, should I go through the steps of the flex method? Would that be helpful? Please. Yeah, that'd be great. So um, step one of the flex is connection. And this really is kind of a point that we slightly touched upon earlier, which is 
accepting whatever is coming up for you right then. So let's say an I'm not good enough thought is coming up and it's like it's increasing my kind of anxiety, that feeling of stress, my shoulders are getting tense, rather than immediately going to numbing, actually it's identifying that feeling. And so I was a huge fan of acceptance commitment therapy with the founder, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And so he has this diffusion technique, which I think is really helpful. And um, it's just a quick sentence that says, today, my mind feels anxious. And so in that sentence, today, I'm reminding myself that all feelings are temporary. And I'm saying my mind feels and I'm disassociating myself from the emotion. I am not my feelings. Because the one thing I used to get it stuck into is over-identifying with my emotions. And I would say, well, I'm just an anxious person. But actually, that is so untrue. None of us are anxious people. We are experiencing anxiety for a moment in time. And so just to remind myself, I actually start, and research has shown, as soon as we label an emotion, we actually start decreasing its impact. And you can do that by journaling. You can just do that, you know, to yourself. We you can tell a friend. And um, part of the connection step is about upgrading the connection with yourself. So I always think, you know, kind of if you're tired, you're much more vulnerable to kind of tired thoughts. And also you're much more vulnerable to your inner critic getting louder because you almost don't have that kind of energetic barrier to be like, nope, not today. <laughs> not today, Regina. I like to call my uh, bitchy inner critic Regina from the Mean Girls. And so, so I say, well, how do I upgrade my connection? And to me, that is a physical activity of some description. Is it a 20 minute walk? Is it just getting outside even for a few minutes? Is it just a, I call the micro flexes, relaxing my shoulders down, changing my posture because we have to take advantage of that biofeedback mechanism. How do we change our body to influence our mind? Because often when we are feeling anxious, if we look at our body posture, our shoulders are raised up, like we're feeling quite tense in our, um, you know, in our chest, our breath is short. And so that this is when breath work is so, so powerful. Just five belly breaths, relaxing our shoulders down, inhaling into our belly, exhaling out from our belly, belly moves towards the spine. We start activating that parasympathetic nervous system. We start using our body to tell our brains, we are safe, we're not in danger. A lion isn't about to attack us. We don't have any psychological threats that we can't handle. And then we're in, then we're in a much calmer state that we can start tapping in to our wisdom and that computer side of the brain. So that's where the next step is curiosity. And Byron Katie was my biggest inspiration for this. And she was a huge, huge guide. And her books, the book would love what is. And when I started reading her books, this was a big aha moment for me in my journey. And she has these four questions that I include in the book because it was just like game changing. And she she has a quote that, you know, this, the root of our suffering begins in our thoughts. And I was like, no, no, that can't be the case. No. And actually... When she breaks it down, you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe there is some truth there. So let's say, oh, I'm like feeling anxious because I'm, you know, getting worried that I'm, you know, I'm not going to be enough for this podcast audience. You know, her four questions is one, is this true that people don't think I'm enough? Well, you know, my ego is like, yes, it is true. Well, can you be a hundred percent sure this is true? And you're like, well, no, 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 I can't be 100% sure because I obviously can't look into the mind of everybody's, you know, everybody's opinions. So I don't know if it's 100% sure, sure that's true. 
how does this thought make me feel that I'm not enough? Well, like insecure, unconfident, terrible about myself, low energy, fueling more inner, inner critical thoughts. Who would I be without this thought? Confident, my best self, full of life. And you're suddenly like, oh my gosh, I am allowing thoughts that I do not know that are, I don't know if they're even true. Allowing them to ruin my day, ruin my mood and ruin my self-esteem. So they remind you that thoughts are not facts, that curiosity step. And this then moves me into choice. We always have a choice how we're going to respond in life. And as human beings only have two fundamental emotions, love and fear, we ask ourselves a question. Am I going to move with love or am I going to move with fear? Like I always have a choice. Am I going to be compassionate? I have a choice to be compassionate towards myself, or I have a choice to be mean to myself. Remind yourself of that choice. I often think with things with the mind, we were a victim of our mind rather than taking control of our mind, saying, reminding ourselves, no, I do have a choice about how I look after myself right now. Am I going to be kind to myself? And then fourth is commitment. How do we commit to action aligned with our values? Because and I'm not sure what you think about this, but Things like the secret and all of that kind of that kind of literature always used to grate me a bit because if we don't take action to face our fears, so let's say we're terrified of getting on that flight, if we then for our entire life never got on a flight, we never face our fear and show ourselves that actually we're going to be okay. And it does like everything with mental health takes a lot of commitment to action because our brain is so powerful otherwise. It will then like reward us for going, well done, you stayed safe, you didn't get on that plane, well done. And then we become trapped in our fears. So commitment to action has been so critical for me. Like I don't want to go to that party and feeling really socially anxious. Okay, but how would I commit to what I want my future to look like? I'm, I'm just going to go for 10 minutes. I'm just going to commit to 10 minutes. And so those are the four steps, the four C's that really are my toolbox now moving forward. And it reminds me about what the whole book is about, like flexible thinking. How can we be flexible about everything we're feeling? Because it can change. That's so, so powerful. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I love Byron Katie as well. And those questions are so, yeah. When, when you ask yourself, <laughs> is this really true? You know, can I absolutely know that it's true? Am I some kind of mind reader that can <laughs> predict the future and read people's minds? No. So yeah, and I totally agree with you there about action. I think, you know, I talk to people a lot about confidence and confidence comes from taking action. We can't, we can't grow our confidence unless we give things a try and, you know, yeah, take action to, to do the things that we might be afraid to do. So I love, I love that that's a part of what you're teaching as well. Amazing. There was one final question I was going to ask you. Is there anything that you're struggling with at the moment and what are you doing to kind of overcome it or handle it? Great question. Um, because I sometimes do think that, especially if you work in this field, people kind of just assume that like, you know, everything, everything's great, you know, like, like this idea, this illusion that you, you can fix your mental health forever. And it is just always a work in progress. And I think for me, like the biggest like fear I have right now is definitely the book because I wrote it thinking that nobody was going to read it. And so that's why I include my 12-year-old diary entries in there because I wanted to show people how 
the beliefs we started to believe when we were 12 often can then run our lives forever if we don't actually look at them and go, okay, maybe this kept me safe at 12, but I don't need to have them anymore. That these diary entries, I'm, and, and I guess they, they kind of like summarize the whole book. It's so personal. So I'm kind of having this like almost vulnerability hangover. I'm not sure if anybody relates to this, but you know, when you have a chat with a, someone you've just met and you just end up because you're having a great chat, you end up telling them everything about your life and everything about your inner, you know, inner, inner psyche. And then you wake up the next morning being like, Oh my God, what on earth did I say? <laughs> so I'm having a bit of a vulnerability hangover with the book being like, you know what? I just, you know, basically you can read the book and know every inner secret that I, I possibly have. And so that is a little bit kind of terrifying, this idea that it's literally just going to be on the shelves for 10 quid. <laughs> and, um, but then at the same time, it's like liberating because I have hopefully just, you know, I, I wanted to put down the story to, you know, in service of other people's journeys, just for every, anyone else to, you know, read someone else's diary and realize that, oh, you know, they may have had similar experiences and this is what's helped me. So I'm definitely, I'm like kind of oscillating between incredibly liberated and because we're recording this two weeks before it's coming out. And uh, so I'm I'm sure it will kind of like dissipate because you've just got those kind of like pre-show nerves, I guess. But you know, what's helped me with this, you know, with this fear is reminding myself that A, it's totally normal. And also stress is a privilege. And I think often we can look at stress so badly and stress can have such a bad reputation in a way. It's like, oh gosh, avoid stress. But some stress is, it's, it's, it's not terrible. Like we need some stress at times. And, you know, if we do have stress in our lives, then often that is a privilege because, you know, we're lucky to have maybe responsibility. So I'm reframing it and definitely using those four steps, like really connecting with it, breathing through it, you know, going for like walks when I can, like really kind of challenging those thoughts, those questions and choosing, you know, to be kind to myself and compassionate and asking questions like, what would I advise the friend experiencing what I am now? And then committing to my values, which is, you know, I have chosen to live a life of like honesty. And this is an example of that. So it's a, yeah, it's a, and then probably lastly, I, you know, having faith, I guess, that, you know, everything is, you know, everything in our lives is always unfolding perfectly for us. And, you know, that's the illusion, I guess, of, you know, comparison. Like we're so uncomparable. Like, you know, it's it's like comparing kind of apples and bricks, you know, they're just, <laughs> they're so different. So, you know, not comparing my journey to somebody else's, just knowing that we are all, we're all unfolding in the most like divine way. Yeah, I love that. love that. And I love the diary entries in the book. Definitely recognise my 12-year-old self in there. And it was, uh, yeah, sweet to read. And um, I'm glad that you shared that. And uh, definitely relate to having a book out is extremely scary, especially when it has your personal stuff in. And I remember being anxious before the anxiety solution came out, drinking a jug of margaritas the night before. <laughs> Not the most healthy way of coping, but there you go. Um, we're not always going to do it, do it perfectly, but yeah. Thanks so, I'll but I know make this sure going to do got so the limes well. in. Yeah, get, get your margaritas in. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Poppy, for everything you've shared. I think you're absolutely brilliant. I'm yeah, very excited for this book to be out there and all the people that's going to help. Can you 
just share about where people can find out more about you, um, when the book's out and anything else that you want people to know about where they can find out what you're up to. Yeah. So thank you so much, Chloe. Huge fan of your podcast and so grateful for everything that you do. And it's amazing. You're, I mean, you've got so many fans. The amount of people I talk to being like, I just love Chloe's podcast. So it's on, an honor to have been a guest. So thank you. Um, anyone can find me just at Poppy Jamie and it's just on Instagram or the Happy Not Perfect app that's got lots of digital workouts for your mind. And then the Happy be not perfect book is really just and anywhere you buy books but would love to love to hear any thoughts or questions or if you do read the book any you know any reflections you have on that would always always love to hear that amazing thank you so much thank you so much chloe can't wait to have you back on mine you have been listening to the karma you podcast with me chloe brotheridge Don't forget, you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.